Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I am Mariah Rose. <laughs> we are here and present and ready to talk today. Yep. I didn't just make us retake it because I just stared at you when you <laughs> introed. <laughs> it's like the countdown in three, two... And then you just stared. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what happens. Well, we're here and we're recording now. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you are new to the show, uh, thanks for finding us. Welcome. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and mm-hmm. uh, review and tell all your friends. For our normal listeners, thanks for coming back. We got a big one this week. We are into the Halloween spooky season. We weren't originally going to do really any, and then it was kind of like, how could you not? Gotta be a little spooky. (laughs) We're like 95% spooky at all times, anywho. That's kind of the thing when everybody's like, it's finally the time. I'm like, it's always Halloween for for us, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we're just always a little creepy. I don't know that we're (laughs) Halloween-y. Yeah, (laughs) just driving around in in a van with a mustache and dark Uh, glasses count. Okay. Well, this week we are going to be talking about a big one, but also keep uh, your ears open for next week because we are approaching our 100th episode Mm -hmm. and we are planning a big giveaway and some other cool announcements. And we are going to be discussing all that next week on our 99th episode. Yes. So listen up. We will also discuss it on our Instagram at Lasergraves. But you'll want to get get in on that because we've got some fun stuff lined up for yeah, you guys. Yeah, get in on it. Uh, because it's party time. I knew I had to put in that clip at least somewhere in this episode. But before we get started on this awesome movie, Thrift Store Finds of the Week... Yeah, you know, pretty low-key. They got their Halloween stuff, which is prime time for me to actually look for my wardrobe. (laughs) So I go look through the Halloween wardrobes, like their costumes, because often they have vintage stuff mixed in there. It's a really great time to find cool stuff. I didn't have any luck on this particular excursion for myself, but I found uh, costumes for our daughters. And we have kind of this ever-growing costume box situation. Yes, not just for our children, for all of us. <laughs> and we just access it as needed at any given moment. Yeah. I found a costume too, and it was really cool, and I regret not buying it. It was an Apollo spacesuit, like a metallic one. Cool. And would have definitely used it for a short film. And then I uh, passed on it, and I regret it. Did you find anything else then? I did. Like you said, it was Halloween season. I found this really cool, um, like, wolf mask, like half mask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that I was like, I'm sure I can find a use for this in a movie somewhere. Well, you already wore it in a family portrait. I did. Yeah. So it's already gotten use. So I bought that. And then I also found a uh, Talking Heads cassette tape. That was something. Yeah. You listen to cassettes out here. I sure do. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's pretty good overall. Yeah, solid. Solid. So there's your thrift store finds of the week. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. That's right. Okay, this week, as we discussed, it is Halloween season. So to kick things off, we're going big. I mean, basically everybody else has already covered it, so I guess... We're next in line. It's our turn. Might as well do it. So this week we are going with a heavy hitter from 1985, the one and only Return of the Living Dead. Y'all heard of that one before? Nope. Okay. When did you first see this? I don't even know. It's been, like, I think I was maybe a teenager. Again, it was the 
liberation time for me when I indulged deeply in all of the things that had been denied to me for so long. <laughs> what about you? I This is one of those films I don't remember the first time I saw. It's this kind of like Texas Chainsaw. Uh, they're just, it's such a classic mm-hmm. that it was a must-see, you know? And so I don't yeah. remember being like, finally, I'm going to see it. I've just always known about it. I've watched it a ton over the years. So I really couldn't pinpoint. It's just yeah. been in my life for a long time. Um, I also think that this is one of the few films, if you do collect VHS, this is a must-have. I mean, this is like to have Return of the Living Dead in your collection. It's it's kind of one of those must-have classics. And so I've got that HBO copy, which we watched, and it uh, looked pretty good. Yeah. So it's holding up nicely. <laughs> yeah, but I think also we learned it's good to have it on DVD because they have so many special features. Yeah, we've got like a collector's edition on DVD and it had all this cool stuff. So we watched all that in prep for today's episode. Mm-hmm. I even watched the movie with commentary and all that. You, you know? went all in. Guys, this is what we do. This is what we do for you. Yeah. Appreciate That's us. That's what Eric does for you. <laughs> no way. You, you definitely were doing it this week. So <laughs> anyway, Return of the Living Dead, 1985. I think most people know about this one, but... I guess we can't really discuss it without setting the backstory of how this even came to be. Most people would know this, but maybe not everybody. So in the beginning, in the beginning, it was was darkness. It was 1968 is where we're journeying back to the land of Night of the Living Dead with George Romero and John Russo co-writing that one, you know, monumental film. Obviously, we don't need to go on about that. But what happened was after the film came out, they kind of split and decided both could continue on with the zombie franchise in the canon of the Night of the Living Dead. However, so they could have their own kind of free reign in artistic endeavors, George Romero would get the Dead series. So that's why he did Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, all that, Diary of the Dead. Isn't it, I forgot to look into this because I, I only vaguely remember, Romero had forgotten to copyright or trademark yeah, or something. Yeah, that's why so, everybody could get yeah. it. Yeah, it was um, public domain. So there was maybe some f- formalities and some niceties, but <laughs> yeah. really anybody could do whatever they wanted. Yeah, so, well, they could show that film, that's for sure. John Russo, on the other hand, instead of getting the dead side, got the living dead. So that's why he got to create the Return of the Living Dead franchise. And that's how they split off. But they really are all considered canon of the Night of the Living Mm -hmm. Dead franchise, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, and you know, the time in which it came out and how different it is from the original Night of the Living Dead, it's... It was kind of a gamble, I, I think. Yeah, and I would agree, because what you had right before this was Dawn of the Dead, which was mm-hmm. a huge hit, and uh, it's not this film at all. No. So you really do get a second choice of saying, well, but I've never really distinguished them as being like this side, that side. They've always just been kind of fun and watch. I, I watch them together, and I right. I think they're cool. They're very different, obviously. And, yeah. Um, I, I think just because I've grew up on Romero films more. I, you know, I'm maybe more partial to those. Although John Russo, he did one of my favorite cheesy horrors from the 80s, The Majorettes, which we still have not covered. So, Mm. you know, he had his own thing going too. But that's why we got to Return of the Living Dead, which was John Russo wrote it. You know, Mm -hmm. he wrote this whole script out and and everything. Good job, bud. 
Yeah, it was quite a bit different, and it got picked up to be turned into a movie, and none other than Toby Hooper was set to direct it. Ah, yes, Tobe. Good old Tobe. Uh, You know, speaking of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he did not. He kind of bowed out of it, and Mm -hmm. that's where we got uh, Dan O'Bannon, the the legendary Dan O'Bannon. You a fan? Uh, well, after I saw his interview, yes. <laughs> he is a quirky he is dude. Huh? Nutty. Nutty. <laughs> yeah, was. R.I.P. Oh, uh, when did he die? Uh, maybe 09? I don't know. Just say a date. 2014. Sure. Shush. No, he didn't. Don't fact check. Well, Dan O'Bannon, if you guys don't know, uh, is really a monumental name in writing, especially sci fi writing. He's the guy who gave us Dark Star and Alien and Life Force, Total Recall, all those. But he also worked on films like Star Wars. You know, he did all kinds of cool miniatures and special effects and stuff. Yeah, like you said, it was writing that really got a toehold in the film industry. And he built out from there. He came out to do directing and Mm -hmm. just couldn't. So everybody was like, well, if you want to make a living, do some writing first. And then it just he never kind of stopped writing. Mm -hmm. But he was really good at it. And so naturally, uh, when he got this script, he read it over and decided... I'm going to go ahead and do a rewrite. And I think that that was probably a pretty smart decision. Yeah, for sure. I've never read the original script. I'd like to. I think it would be interesting. But I think it's vastly different from what Dan O'Bannon offered up. And this was his first time ever directing. He had never done a feature before. So talk about a a big outing. Jumping in the deep end. It sounds, too, when you listen to him, like it's a full comedy of errors there's not a whole lot of conversation about how much went wrong or like specifically what went wrong but they all allude to a lot of the problems and there's like a few that everybody focuses on but i think it was fraught with difficulties yeah well i think just first time directing too and he admits a lot of times like well i was trying to be clever here and i shouldn't have done that Mm -hmm. and you know, so he really is very honest about it being a first time, you know, directing debut. Mm-hmm. However, man, talk about a legacy. If you're going to direct, you know, only like two films, this be one of them. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. It's yeah, it's a <laughs> it's, classic. It is a classic. Uh, but that's who we're dealing with, Dan O'Bannon. So that's our director, which is uh, a you know pretty awesome dude to bring on board. And they got a pretty healthy budget, $4 million to do this. I think that they were feeling a little shortchanged. They talk about it a lot. Uh, both him and then William Stout is our other big guy we should talk about, too, because he was the production designer. And he mm-hmm. really is, like, the right-hand man to this film. Oh, yeah. He's great. And he just is responsible for, like, everything in this movie. So it was neat to hear them talk. But, yeah, both of them, him and Dan, just constantly were like, well, if we had more money, we could have done this. And they always joke, like, you know, Spielberg wouldn't have had to deal with this and blah, yeah. blah. But what what can you do? It was a low-budget horror film that they were trying to make, you know, into something special. And honestly, I think they did a hell of a job. You know, honestly, I would say that I teach... When I teach art students, I tell them to put restrictions on themselves because sometimes when you have restrictions, it actually gives you an opportunity to find new creative ways of dealing with with issues that you wouldn't have if you had unlimited resources. Yeah. So I think that this is a great example of that. These these people were just so desperate to make a movie. They didn't know how to do this or that, but they came up with these ingenious methods 
to solve their problems mm-hmm. and to make this come true, like this dream of theirs to come true. And I think ultimately what it hap- what happened was they kind of broke new ground with creativity. Yeah, well, and not only that, um, Dan O'Bannon kind of took a risk with changing up the zombie formula. Oh, yeah. You know, and he really did offer up some interesting things, which we'll talk about once we get to the zombies. Mm-hmm. But there's some things that we just take for granted as like, that's what zombies do. But mm-hmm. uh, they really were introduced in this film. So this was a big one for yeah. many, many reasons. And this had a pretty big impact on a lot of people. 85 too was just a really great year for horror. So I think that this kind of set the tone for you know, we talked about this a couple times where early 80s always feels like 70s spillover. Yeah. And then early 90s feels like late 80s. But really 85 to like 89, that's that's your 80s films right yeah. there. You know, they, those are your classic 80s. And I, when I watch this, this feels like your like classic 80s horror. Yes, so and deep in it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it did come out with a really good class of movies at the time, mm-hmm. but it was shot in LA, which is funny because it's supposed to take place in what, Kentucky? Yeah. I think it's Louisville. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's all shot in LA and uh, that proved to be problematic for things like the cemetery, you know, which was all completely created on the spot and you yeah. know, none of that existed, but they did a really good job and it takes place in the summer. You know, this is well this was shot in 84. The the script was written in 83, I think. This was shot in 84, came out in 85, but Yeah. This film takes place um, in real time, right? It's July 3rd, 1984 is when we pick up into it. I have a little info about that. So at the very beginning, we meet Frank and Freddie. They're working at this like medical stocking supply warehouse. And uh, it is acknowledged that it's the 4th of July weekend. Oh, really? Yes. But in 1984, the 4th of July was in the middle of the week. Oh, oh, oh. It was on like a Tuesday. I've always thought of this as a 4th of July movie. Every time, you know, oh, when, yeah. the, when the 4th of July comes around, you always pull out like, you know, Uncle Sam and those kinds of movies. <laughs> but I always think of this because of, of the opening date. It's so weird because it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. It is in no way important. They could have said it's August 14th. They could have said it's September 29th. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Anyway. You know what's also interesting is that we were commenting on how everybody's like sweating the whole time and mm-hmm. boy, it must have been really hot outside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they were all on a soundstage. Like it was all built inside and they weren't sweating at all. They said that was all created. Then they were giving tips. Dan O'Bannon was like, you want to make people look like they're really sweating, you spray the... Um, the sideburns and let it drip down the side. Oh, smart. They weren't sweating at all. That was all just like supposed to look that way. And actually, you know, they talk when we watched the the interviews with the cast and crew, everybody talked about how cold they were yeah. during the filming, yeah, well, how they were all freezing. Well, because they had it raining fake rain the entire time, too. Yes, and they're and, all like basically nude. Yeah, well, one of them well. especially, but... It was fake rain the entire time, and it was at night, so yeah. it was getting really cold. Yeah, it was um, It was pretty kind of miserable to shoot on yeah. the set, and by the end, everybody was pretty much over it. Yeah, even in L.A., I mean, being cold at night, you're going to be not happy to be soaking wet. Yeah, but you talked about Frank and Freddy, uh, so let's introduce those characters real fast. Okay, so it's... Let's take you in. Frank <laughs> yeah, sure. and Freddie. Frank is a like a manager mm-hmm. at a medical supply warehouse, and it's Freddie's first day on the job. So he's getting a tour around this medical supply warehouse, and it is so cool. I would have freaked out to have a job there as like 
even yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Freddie is like a uh, kind of a street punk, but like a in a in a more not over the top way like we'll see some of his friends yeah it's like he's the kind of prep who's on the periphery yeah but he would definitely go to like an x show or something like yeah, that yeah. you know you could see it uh i was listening to dan o'bannon talk about him too what's it what's the um actor's name did you write it down freddie is played by tom t-h-o-m oh yeah Thom. okay so here's what i have to say about Thom that york so <laughs> Honestly, if if you're shortening Thomas, which is with a TH, to like a shorter version of itself, it should be T-H-O-M. However, you pronounce it Tom, not Thom. Also, I think we should just here and now take a stance. Everybody, if your name is Thomas or if you know somebody named Thomas, they are now Thom. Thomas. Or Thomas, yes. <laughs> okay, anyway, Thom Matthews plays Freddy. Yeah, he, uh, I guess Dan was saying that, you know, unlike the guy who plays Frank, who is very much like old school, you, you practice your lines mm-hmm. and you deliver them and everything. Uh, Tom was more um, a method actor mm-hmm. and he really liked to get into character and stuff. Yeah. And he was saying even like when he showed up on set, he had a pierced ear and he was like, I didn't tell you to pierce your ear. And he's like, yeah, I know. I just, you know, was like getting into character. Oh. He said, well, we could have just glued something on your ear, but he didn't want to. And he said that was kind of set the tone for this actor in general which everybody talked yeah. about being like really this incredible guy on set because he was introducing things and just doing things on the spot that weren't scripted, but were really adding a lot to yeah. the film. And we'll talk about that as it goes on. But it's really interesting because the 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 old guard, you know, the old grandpa's on set. Which would have been uh, Frank. Uh, James Karen plays Frank and, and Clue Gallagher. Yeah, Clue, who we haven't Gulliger. been introduced to yet, but um, is a return to our podcast because we covered him in Uninvited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, they were like these crusty old guard that talked about how they'd been in a billion movies. They're not and crusty. They're so great. They were great, but they are also like really flexing hard in the interviews. Yeah. and. But they were saying how Tom could like keep up as this young kid and they were surprised because he was really good at acting and they weren't expecting that. So uh, I just thought it was interesting to see the dynamic that was created with with the cast right away. Okay, so Frank is showing, Frank played by James Karen, is showing uh, Freddie around his job just like a normal day. Also, I wanted to say... Dan O'Bannon had actually written the character of Frank for himself. Oh, really? Yes. And, but after James Karen, you know, auditioned, he saw it and was like, oh, he'd be better. And I would agree because James Karen puts on the show <laughs> yeah. of a lifetime. He's great, man. Uh, He's so... Like, I love that shot when he says, you want to go see him down in the basement? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what we're getting to uh, is... The, the way Dan brilliantly weaves in and immediately kind of acknowledges, which is really smart, acknowledges Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. is this conversation between Frank and Freddy where he says, you know, that movie is based on facts. Like true events. True events. Yeah. We actually have the bodies in chemical tubs downstairs. But he does this little face where he's like, you want to go see him? You know, yeah. the dead. And he like sticks his tongue out and suits his eyes to the side. And I just laugh every time. He's so just... Good. He's a really good actor. This whole cast is, I mean, just spot on. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this a lot when we talk about movies. We did this last week with Lost Boys where 
if you have the right cast, no matter how low but the budget, it it just works. Yes. And this is another one of those movies where the cast was just the right cast. Yes. For as much fun as, as I make of actors and actresses, I think that a good crew or a good cast, excuse me, also a good crew, but they, they make this movie what yeah. it is. And, and it's so enjoyable. I also wanted to say that while Frank is giving Freddie the tour, he makes a comment about these skeletons coming from India. Yeah. And I actually have this week's Fun fact. Oh, yeah. So, while working on uh, the set of Alien, Dan O'Bannon was talking to H.R. Geiger. Or Mm -hmm. Geiger. Is it Geiger or Geiger? I feel like it's Geiger. (laughs) H.R. Good old H.R. I've covered both of my bases. Anyway, he wanted skeletons, and he said the only place to get them is from India. <laughs> yeah. And it's true, I guess. Yeah, it's totally true. But after this movie came out, they made it illegal to, or they stopped the shipment of skeletons from India, and Dan O'Bannon was wondered if it, his movie had something to do with that. I wouldn't be surprised because it's a, you know, they do clearly talk about it in this mm-hmm. film, and this film was a big hit. So it was like they broke the secret and now you can't you can't get an Indian skeleton, which is creepy and, and upsetting in, in so totally many ways. Creepy. All right. Well, there you go. Well, anyway, so we were talking about how Frank and Freddie, they go downstairs. They sh- he shows them the the corpse mm-hmm. and he's talking about how these are like really solid, you know, vessels. And he smacks <laughs> it and they break open, which was all sulfuric gas. Dan O'Bannon and William Stout, the production designer, said that's the only way to get yellow gas. Mm-hmm. And that it smelled so horrible. Yeah, and they were all to like, like sick to their stomach. The farts of a thousand dinosaurs. Anyway, yeah, I can't imagine being on that set. That would have been pretty damn gross. It feels like the whole set was extremely uncomfortable uh, yeah. after listening to it. But this is where we get the opening credits of these awesome titles. The, the artwork for yeah. the credits... The lettering is so awesome. It was in the commentary that they talked about how they got the idea from Hunter S. Thompson's books. That's what the lettering is taken from. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Which is really cool. That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, after we meet them, the other ones we probably want to discuss are the punks, right? The street punks. Yes. They have a great intro shot of them walking. So it's like a shot of them walking alongside a warehouse. And we see, uh, first of all, Freddie's girlfriend. Her name is Tina, and she is played by Beverly Randolph. She's kind of like one of those characters. She's pretty, like a little bit of a preppy girl who's hanging with the wrong crowd. Mm-hmm. But it kind of makes sense because Freddie's character is also like kind of on the edge of like punk, but also you could probably introduce him to your parents, okay, and he'd yeah. be respectful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. As opposed to the rest of this gang. Um, we have Spider, who is played by Miguel Nunez. Mm-hmm. And actually, as he was cast in this, he was homeless. Oh, really? He was living in his car, which interestingly, was it Night of the Demons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That also had a character who was played by a homeless person. Yeah. Well, not played by a homeless person, but it was an actor who had, like, he was on who the was verge. Homeless. Of, yeah, he was about to just oh, be, okay. be homeless and, and got the role, and that saved him. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then uh, we have a character also 
all of the rest of the characters have awesome names. They really, well... No, a few of them, I guess. There's a couple more boring ones, like Chuck, who's this new wave dude. Yeah. I, he, he's got the, you know, the, like, coat. He looks more kind of rockabilly almost, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. What would you describe him as? I don't know. He's got, he's got a blazer on. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Casey, who is... I don't, she's, she's got like, not a mohawk, it's like a faux hawk, but it's yeah. blue and red. She's pretty cool. Yeah, actually, let's tell the story of the casting of Casey right now. Oh, sure, yeah, you it's know good. all about that one. So, uh, Casey was a, she worked in like a gentleman's club, but she was a stripper. And I guess Dan O'Bannon was a frequent flyer there, and he had offered a part of Trash, who we'll get to in a minute, to, I think it was originally cast as legs, to a few different women who worked at this establishment. They turned it down. And so she was like third in line. And she's like, actually, no, I'm naked all the time. I'm so great. Yeah. <laughs> so comp- her quotes on this are hysterical. Oh, they're very, uh, she's very confident. Yes. And she said, no, she wanted to play a party girl because she likes to party. So she got Casey, the faux hot girl. Yeah, so he had to keep looking for the trash character, which yes. is a good choice. Absolutely. This is uh, played by Linnea Quigley. Yep. Linnea Quigley is, uh, you know, we've already talked about her. She was in Night of the Demons. So yep. she's a return also. Uh, she's been in everything. She's Scream Queen. We all know her. I mean, she's been in so many fun films. And she's also done uh, this, I don't know, maybe we can talk about it. But she did this thing called Linnea Quigley's Horror Workout, and it's a very expensive tape. I can't own it, but my friend Eddie made me a boot of it and is sending it right now. Uh-huh. I've never seen it, so I'm really excited to see it. So we'll we'll check it out and go. We'll Updates get back to you. Updates to come. Yeah, maybe it'll be a bonus thing. But anyway, yeah, so she plays Trash, which is a really iconic character in this film. Yeah, we'll get to her scene. We also have... Uh, Scuzz, played by Brian Peck, who I guess is normally just like a little nerdy guy, but he went all in on this character and he does a great job. And then Suicide, who is played by Mark Venturini. Yeah. Suicide's the one that I was like, oh, this dude's like a punk. I mean, he was the most... And I think it's because also I had just seen... Maybe a few days ago, I rewatched The Decline of Western Civilization Part 1. It's all about the L.A. punk scene, which we'll talk about with the soundtrack. But uh, there's a guy in there that looks so much like Suicide. And was like, I wonder, you know, there's just uh, the the way they design these characters is just different enough, but also believable. Because when you watch something like that documentary... Mm The punks don't all look just like classic punks. They no. do have that variation on... It's like some a mixed bag. Yeah. As long as they don't have long hair, they're good to go as far as guys are concerned. But other than that, yeah, they, they kind of are a mixed bag. So this group of punks, I, th- I think it works. I, think I it do works too. Well. You and I both hung with a little bit of a rough crowd when we were younger. <laughs> now we don't hang with anybody because quarantine is forever. <laughs> but when we were younger... Uh, we would hang with a rougher crowd, and I would say that most of our friends were a full mixed bag. We Something kind of tied us all together, but we all had our own little look or take on the look or whatever it was. Yeah, but for sure. I think, I think this grouping works. It's very convincing for its time and place. So these guys are basically just wanting to party. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're like, oh, but we can't party without Freddie. So, yeah. and Freddy's at work he's working at this cool warehouse but they don't know that he's just been 
gassed by the Night of the Living Dead gas. No. So they go and they pull up and they're like, so when does he get off to Tina? And she's like, in a billion years, it was like four hours <laughs> yeah. or two hours, something ridiculous. So like, they're just going to sit there and wait. <laughs> yeah. And there's conveniently a cemetery right yes. next to the warehouse. Did you notice the name of the cemetery? I did, but I forgot it. What is it? Resurrection Cemetery. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. all foam. That's all just, yeah. you know, carved out. That entire facade with the gates and the trees, none of that was there. I mean, they, they that's all production design. And yeah, the, it was in an olive grove. Well, no. There's two different locations. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the exterior that uh-huh. you see in the film with the gates and stuff on the other side is just like railroad tracks and stuff. It's just LA. Uh-huh. Uh, but then they needed an interior and they couldn't find grass or anything or anywhere trees. or forest. So they found an olive grove and just put a bunch of Spanish moss and built the entire cool. graveyard. But I think it's about 20, 30 minutes away, which is really cool because in later in the movie when they're escaping and they're, they crash through the gates, it's so flawless because they're driving through the graveyard and then they punch through the front gates and come out the front and it just looks totally flawless. Like nothing. It reminds me of uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Oh, yeah. How when they look out the window, they're looking across the street, but that's like an hour away in yeah. real life. <laughs> I, I just, I love that kind of stuff. But the graveyard scene, man, could I relate because this is what I did in high school too. I was a goth and when you were bored... You got a bottle of vodka and you went to the graveyard and you hung out and listened to music with your friends. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. They just, they're just partying in a graveyard. Yeah, they're just being like rebellious teens in a graveyard, killing time, waiting for Freddy to get off. Meanwhile, uh, Freddy's in the fight of his life. <laughs> yeah, and in the graveyard, they're rocking out to some 45 Grave, which is pretty awesome. We played it at the beginning. Yeah. This soundtrack, um, I have it on vinyl, which I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really, uh, special collection of my vinyl collection is like uh, rock horror or any kind of horror soundtracks that are based around rock or metal or something. And like the VHS, I feel like this is a must have record. The soundtrack is awesome. I would say this whole album from 45 Grave is actually awesome too, but it's got the damned, it's got everybody on it. So Mm -hmm. Like a few of my friends I know, this was the introduction for these bands for me, too. Like, I had never heard these bands before. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this movie, I was like, whoa, what is this? I got to check this out. And so I think that this soundtrack really gets credit for introducing the L.A. punk scene to uh, a ton of people that wouldn't have known it existed otherwise. You know, I don't I don't think you have the answer to this either because we both researched and I didn't see anything on it, but I don't know how that soundtrack came to be. Because I don't either. Dan O'Bannon, while he is many things... <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I don't think he's very, like, cool. No, he was just like a really nerdy sci-fi writer. Although when we heard uh, Casey's character, Jewel Shepard, talk about him, we heard a different side of Dan O'Bannon. So wh- yeah. who knows? We got the uh, Dark Star version of Dan O'Bannon in that story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. So most of the punks uh, decide to like chill in the graveyard and do their thing. Tina goes in search of Freddy, who is currently having a a personal crisis as he runs around the warehouse discovering that all the dead have come to life, including a bisected dog. So it's like a cross-section of a dog. This is so freaking cool. 
It's awesome. And so it's like a Scotty dog that's in half and they hear it like upstairs. Like, hmm, hmm, hmm. You know, and Dan wanted a Great Dane. Did yes, you know that? Yes, they said they didn't have the budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said that in the commentary. He was like, if I had my way, it would have been a gigantic dog. Yeah, yeah, but it was just a Scotty dog. And they go to help it up and realize it's a bisected dog that's alive. And that's kind of their clue. That, oh, no. And there's like a corpse in the refrigerated section and butterflies on a board. And they're all coming to life. And so uh, Freddie and Frank begin to lose their beans. And it's really cool. One thing I like about this film is the back and forth of the two groups. You know, Mm -hmm. we constantly, it's not, you don't follow one story through the entire film. You keep bouncing back and forth until they intersect in like the third act. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really clever the way it's written. But when we go back to the graveyard is, I mean, this is like the scene where they're all partying. Suicide has this great quote right here. Which just resonates with, I think, anybody who is like, you know, grew up on the fringe of society, Mm -hmm. uh, where he's talking about his look. What do you think this is all about? You think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I mean, that's just, that's so true. But Mm -hmm. this is also where Linnea kind of um, rose to fame because... Uh. Trash is taken off her clothes again. <laughs> yes, the character Trash strips down. She also at this point or somewhere around here says that her worst fear is being eaten to death by old men. Yeah. Um, which is important. Uh, <laughs> but she strips it down. And I have some information about that. Oh, really? What? Okay. So she strips down into nothing. She's fully nude. Yeah, well, and- she's got some uh, leggings on. Yep. And in the making of, the original plan and the original shot was her with, like, her pubic hair exposed. Mm -hmm. And then a producer came, who (laughs) I'm going to now refer to as a producer. Oh, Because they saw that pubic hair and were like, no! More than 50% of the earth has one of those, but we cannot look at it. How dare you show that? So then Dan O'Bannon's response was, okay, well, we'll get rid of the pubic hair. The producer came back, said, oh, that's worse. (laughs) (laughs) So their response was to make her a Barbie doll-like cover. Oh, man. So she has like a cod piece that's like a Barbie doll. Yeah, in one of the um, documentaries we were watching, remember she mentioned that it was so weird because when she had to go to the bathroom, she had to have that, like, cod piece removed. Yeah. Oh, how weird. <laughs> She's a trooper, though. Man, I'll give it to her in this film. Boy, that... Yeah. Talk about... Because everybody else, even though it's cold as hell on set at night in fake rain there's water everywhere yes she's the one that is totally naked this entire film she's got leggings she's got leggings but yeah so we get Linnea's dance which is really fun I mean it's just such a blast it's just this it's just punks being punks in a graveyard but they're not harming anybody I also like this too they're just kind of doing their own damn thing and that's I guess that's how my friends were we weren't the ones that like drove down the street looking for fights. We were just the ones that Doing wanted to thing. yeah, go do our own thing. And I like that. They're just waiting for their friend. It's so relatable. Yeah, so Linnea's on she hops up on a, a like a mausoleum or like a large grave site 
to do her dance, and I actually know a little bit about this. Her original dance was to Vanity's Nasty Girl. What? Yes, that's what she like performed it on set to. But they later switched it out by to a song by Stacey Swain that you hear in the movie. Oh, I want to sync it up now. <laughs> no, <don't> <laughs> by Vanity? Yes. I've got Vanity on cassette. Maybe nice. we maybe we can do that. That Nasty would be really girl. funny. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, we should also say too that. While they were prepping for this film, this is neither here nor there. I didn't know where to put this information in our storyline, but they actually made the cast and crew like rehearse several times before they filmed it. So they'd kind of be able to film out of sequence and everybody would know Mm -hmm. where they were supposed to be like in character. And apparently everybody responded quite well to this. A lot of the lines were improv actually in this Mm. film. Uh, some of them were cut out, but a lot of them were improv and the actors got a lot of creative reign. Yeah. Like, uh, this is something that I really liked about Dan O'Bannon. And I could see why after, after seeing him talk, you could tell he, he was kind of a big picture guy and mm-hmm. if it worked great. And there's a key scene later on in the film that was not in the original script. And the actor came up to him and said, yeah. Hey, how about this? And he went with it. But it seemed like the actors got to just kind of roll with it on the spot. Yeah. And I like that because you can tell everybody seems so their their memory of this film is so precious. Like right. they I think because they all felt like they were part of something special. They weren't just kind of told what to do and then left. Yeah, like their voice mattered. Yeah. And I think it was Clue that said, you know, this is like a work of art and it's one of the films that I'm the most proud of being a part of and mm-hmm. Which is interesting because with Clue, you know, he's at the very beginning, but he also, he gets, he gets called back because the canister opened, right? Yes. So Freddie and Frank are panicking about everything being alive in this warehouse of the dead, essentially. They call their boss, Bert, who, who like magically appears two seconds later. Mm-hmm. So there, that's happening at the warehouse. The punks are partying across the street in the graveyard. And Tina is walking between the two places. And this all happens really fast. But we meet... Bert, played by Clue, and he is so great. He comes in and he tries to be the voice of reason, and he's like, okay, yeah. and let, let's deal with this problem, you know, easy peasy, let's get it done. Which is funny because he was this, like, super established actor, yeah. and they got him last minute, and Dan O'Bannon was saying he was really nervous because he didn't know if this was going to work or not, but they didn't have a choice. He showed up to set... I think the day before filming. Yeah. And Dan said that he put on the costume and decided this is the type of person that would be in these clothes and just came out in that character. That was all Clue (laughs) just being like this seasoned actor. And Dan was like, it was perfect. It was exactly the character it needed to be. That was him coming up with that character one day prior to filming. I mean, that's That's awesome. Really cool. I don't know the story, though. In the commentary, I don't know if you came across this in your research. Dan a couple times alluded to Clue breaking down at points and just punching him out in spots. Yeah, I saw that. I could not find what the story was behind that. Yeah, he said, like, punched him out. And so I presumed into unconsciousness or to the ground? I don't know. But Dan was like, you know, he would just punch me out for a bit and then we'd get back to work. And I was like, wait, what? You're very casual about this. I feel this. like I would talk that, about that a lot more if that happened. Although he did say, you know, the scene later on um, when 
Freddy's turning. He's already turned, I guess. And they're in the mausoleum in the in the um, sanctuary. Clue's walking around with a lead pipe. And it was a real lead pipe, but they uh, Dan had him switch it out for a rubber one because he was nervous because Clue had already, like, attacked him. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So, Bert comes to the aid of Freddy and Frank. He's like, I have a friend across the street over there. He works nights. His name's Ernie. He will burn these bodies. Yeah. Also, I need to say that James Karen's freak out when they have to, like, behead a corpse at this point is so delightfully over the top. It is the performance of the whole movie. It is really great. He just, like, loses his beans and screams, and I love it. Also, that scene with the headless corpse running around. Yeah. Is so amazing. That's great. It looks awesome. So awesome. Yes. So Frank and Freddie and Bert, they dismember this like nude body that had been stored in a freezer. They put them into plastic bags and some weasels too. They, I don't know if they said they had weasels to confuse <laughs> yeah. Ernie or if they actually had them like in the supply shop. No, I think that was just to throw them off. Okay. I didn't want to admit what they had. So they take him over to Ernie, who's a, I don't know, a mortician or something. He, he yeah, He's a Nazi. <laughs> he is also a secret Nazi, whatever. They ask him to burn the body parts. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want to say that the bags are moving at this point. And do you want to know what made these bags move? No. What? Mechanical monkeys with the symbols. They took the symbols off. Really? Yes. I love that scene, too. It's so cool how all the bags are moving around. Yeah. It's so clever. Yeah, it's great. Well, let's talk about Ernie for a second. This is probably our other major cast member, right? Mm -hmm. Who hasn't been introduced yet. This is the last of our major cast. So Ernie is played by Don Kelfa. Look up his IMDb. If you don't know him, you'll recognize him and be like, oh, yeah, that dude from everything. Yeah, except he didn't have blonde hair and everything. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. So he plays a character who I actually didn't pick up on this when we were watching. But as I was researching, it came became clear that he's supposed to be like a an escaped Nazi. Like he, you know, came to the us and just assumed a new life as a mortician but there are all these little i don't know easter eggs throughout the movie where you can see like his gun is a german gun the music he's listening to the pictures on his wall yeah you do i would say for me every time i watched it i would pick up on another thing that Mm -hmm. was like okay he's speaking german here or he's got a luger in his hand or you start to put it together but it's very clear and and everybody that made the film was like yeah no of course he's a nazi but i think it's supposed to be played as kind of a subtlety for humor because Mm -hmm. um it's just not up front but he is such an awesome actor yes i mean this guy so great just knocks it out of the park in this role yeah he's over the top also he's all in it's great he is convinced like they have to show him what's in their plastic bags these wiggling plastic bags and then he's like cool 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 we'll burn them he burns them super hot the ashes go up into the air it starts raining and the rain sets the rest of this into motion because it rains right over the cemetery and we get the coolest theme right here during the rain 
this soundtrack. I mean, for the score to be awesome and the soundtrack to be awesome. I yeah. mean, this is really <laughs> It's good. Now let's take a pivot. We meet a character here. I'm only going to talk about him a couple times. We meet Colonel Glover. So Yeah, he's kind of a the forgettable character, but he does play an important role. Yeah, so we go to his house. It's a colonel. He comes home from work. His he lives in the weirdest house in the world. We both commented on it. And guess what? I have some information about this house. Hmm. It's somebody's actual house. There was no set designer. They just found a person with an insane house. As we were watching it, I was like, who has just a red room? This is so terrifying. And somebody out there does. And if you want to make the scariest room in the world, just make an all red room. The murals, too, on the wall. Dan O'Bannon and Bill Stout talk about this in the commentary. They were, like, creeped out by this house. Because they were like, we didn't... The only thing they added was the food on the table. And then that one cabinet that he goes into that's got all the, you know, electronic devices so that he can do his job. Uh That's it. The entire house was just as they as they walked into it. And they said it was so bizarre that somebody would actually live in a place like that. You know, I've actually (laughs) been in a house like that. In in high school, I was garage sailing a lot, and I ended up at this house. It was on the very end of a cul-de-sac, and I went inside because it was like an estate sale, you know, the kind where you mm-hmm. go into the house and look around. But the person was still living in there. She was just selling stuff. She would just put tags on everything in her house. And her two colors were gold, as in like the metal gold, and rose. Mm-hmm. So all of the walls had rose wallpaper, but like different wallpaper or different roses. She had a rose colored couch and every other thing was gold. Gold doorknobs, gold light plates, like like light switch covers, gold Ew. coffee table. And then, you know what she did is she made me sit on her couch, which was rose colored, matched perfectly the wallpaper, red carpet. And she gave me a rose perfume because she said I looked like a rose. Oh, she knew. And I said, that's my middle name. And she kind of seemed to, to like imply that she knew that. Yeah, she's clairvoyant. Yep. Anyway. Well, that's an interesting story, Mariah. Thank you. So people like that actually exist. Yeah. Sleep well, people. Okay, just kind of work through the rest of the film because I don't want to walk through the rest of the film. Our cast starts dying off. Suicide goes via Tarman. I mean, this, we got to talk about this character because he is so freaking cool. Yeah. So this is um, played by a mime of all people. Yeah, it's crazy. So the Tarman is the character who had been in the canister. He's released. He comes out. He's like a wet uh, skeleton played by a mime who's very thin. And they chose him because he was very thin so that they could build up his body but still make it believable as a skeleton. And so he has this like weird way of walking. If you watch an interview with him, you'll see it's fascinating how much effort he put into the creation of this character and its movement but he ends up chasing tina she discovers him in the basement Mm -hmm. interesting story as tina was running up the steps to escape him dan o'bannon hadn't told her and he had actually cut one of the steps to be a false step she didn't know oh that falls real yes which seems kind of mean honestly (laughs) you know tina also said that um she didn't get to see the Tarman's costume until 
the scene. And so that reaction was like her getting to actually see it come at her for the first time. And that whole set's fake. Like all those brick walls and stuff is just carved in, you know, masonite and stuff like that. Weird. That's all constructed. Actually, the stairway that she's going up to Mm -hmm. um, isn't a basement at all. That actually goes up to a roof or something. It was just really cool to see how they played around with the set. But man, this character is so cool, this zombie. And this is where... We didn't talk about it earlier, but we alluded to it, where Dan O'Bannon kind of introduces a new type of zombie for the first time. Mm -hmm. One of them is a fast-moving zombie. They're all fast-moving. Right. But what I'm saying is in this film, this was new, and some people had a problem with it because they were like, zombies are supposed to be slow and sluggish, and they made them fast, which is funny because flash forward years and years later to 28 Days Later, right? where everybody's like, ooh, Fast-moving zombies? That's creepy, but... So innovative. What? (laughs) So, anyway, fast-moving zombies, and then the other big one is not only a creative zombie, because uh, this guy is really creative, but uh, they want brains, and brains was intentional, because he wanted to distinguish it from Night of the Living Dead, is not just being a flesh-eater, but something more that motivates them. Mm -hmm. And so, it's crazy, because growing up as a kid of the 80s, that's all I thought zombies did was eat brains. Brains, yes. And so this is where it comes from. And it's really interesting because it's just so well done. And the brains on set were real brains. I read that. <laughs> did Ew. you read that the uh, extras got a bonus if they ate them? No, I read that Dan O'Bannon ate them and said I wouldn't do it like ask you to do something i wouldn't do myself it's because he offered the story is they're all calf brains and they said they got really gross really quick just like the day of the dead set that stuff got nasty too quick Mm -hmm. but dan o'bannon ate them and said if you actually eat them on film i'll give you a bonus and there's a few that took them up on the offer that's so gross (laughs) and so wrong anyway yeah the the tire man character is so incredibly cool he looks awesome the way yes. he moves. I mean, this is really one of oh, my favorite parts him. of the whole film. And basically what we end up with at this point is a group, like the punks kind of get split up in the rain because the rain burns them. Yeah. But the uh, zombies are being brought back to life from the uh, from the cemetery. And everybody's being picked off one by one. Yes. Like, suicide died by the tar man. Linnea gets like covered in zombies and old killed. men zombies and eaten yeah, alive and eaten but it won't be the last we see of her don't worry but yeah everybody's kind of getting picked off and then the other in- interesting scene I wanted to talk about was when Scuzz gets killed by a zombie coming through the window oh through the door of the crematorium yeah, yes and it pulls her and it's this half body Mm-hmm. And they pull it up and they strap it down. It's, you know, Clue and Ernie and mm-hmm. Bert and Ernie. And they, they set it down and they strap it and they start interrogating a zombie. This is another thing that is so weird. The zombies can communicate their desires. They can talk. And, and it, rationalize. Yeah. And this is where we find out that, like, brains make them feel good. Like, they make the pain go away so they don't hurt. The pain of, like, decomposing. Man, this is really crazy. We get this wild quote here i can feel myself rot such a strange scene yeah i kind of just took for granted until i was taking notes this time you know we always talk about this when you have to take notes you pick up on things i'd never really thought how bizarre this scene really is 
It's really strange yeah. that there's like this humanity still to them and that they just don't want to suffer. But they want to make others suffer. It's weird. Yeah. Very weird. So we have a group over at the uh, medical supply place and we have a group at the crematorium and they're now all in a fight for their life battling against zombies. They eventually, all who remain, end up at the crematorium and are fighting. Meanwhile, Frank and Freddy, who are blasted with the like air that came out of that tube, are now dying and turning into zombies. Yeah. Freddy's scene where he turns into a zombie yeah was all improv too dan cool. said he just did all that himself and he was like wow this is so <laughs> cool yeah. awesome. so he turns and meanwhile linnea turns into this trash zombie she comes up from not where she was killed by the way i don't know how that worked out let's not worry about it but she looks cool yeah and she's now one of the zombies out there killing people and frank we're going to flash forward a lot because we don't have to go through all this. It's just no. pure destruction and zombies taking over. There's ambulances that come and cops that come and all this yep. stuff. But the scene that I want to talk about was Frank, his death scene, which we talked about earlier with Dan letting the cast and crew kind of have insight, yeah, have insight and, and, and make up suggestions. Although when we watched the interview, we found out that, uh, Frank was sick of being on set because of all the false rain and he was cold he and was miserable cold. and he was like, I'm going to just write myself out of this movie and suggested that how about he prays and then kills himself off in the in the yeah. burner. And Dan it's was warm. like, yeah, that's awesome. How are we going to do it? And the whole scene with him putting the the ring, his, his wedding, wedding ring. ring on there, that's all his suggestion. And then he crawls in. This is one of my favorite scenes. I really love yeah. the music's killer right here. And then the smoke that's coming up. Out of the like crematorium. That was burner. all, well, coming out of the front of the burner there. That What do we call that? Is it an oven? Yeah, that was all um, a happy accident because they had burned it up a lot and stuff. There was really? a few that, you know, one we didn't mention at the very, very beginning of the film. What? When you see the corpse, the, you know, the wax is melting to reveal the skull underneath yeah. as the film's starting. At the very, very end of that shot, the uh, glass cracks and that's what opens it uh -huh. beyond the gas coming out. Yeah. That was an accident. It's because they had cranked the heat up so much to melt that wax off the skeleton. It just broke the glass. It broke and Dan was like, that looks awesome. We'll keep cool. that. <laughs> yes, we should also say that. So while all this is happening, everybody who's hunkering down all the humans uh, living humans are calling for help. They first call for paramedics. The paramedics are killed. They call for police. The police are killed. And what's fantastic is the zombies get on this CB and they're like, send more cops. Yeah, that is so funny. It's so great. They're <laughs> yeah. just like, bring them all here. So this is all happening. And it's, as it's expanding, they're like helicopters coming in for a view, like trying to corral everybody and see what's happening. And actually, one of the policemen who's in a helicopter is actually Dan O'Vannon's voice. Oh, speaking. yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because we lose a lot of our cast. Some of the cast is fighting to survive. Yeah. But basically, 
most of them are like, okay, they're hunkered down. They figure out they need to call for help. The police aren't helping, so they're going to call the military. And they use the number that's on the barrel. The military is called, and they waste no time whatsoever. You presume they're ready to help. Nope. They're ready to blow everything up. <laughs> we do get a really fun model here of the, the uh, you know, rocket launcher that's, you know, on this truck. It's just a little miniature. Yep. I love, love miniatures in yes, movies. You do. Shoots a missile, blows everything up, and that is how the film ends. And it is such a great ending because that is what would happen. Yeah. The military would totally blow Cut you your up. your losses. That would absolutely happen. Yes, absolutely. And actually, this film, it was having a difficulty coming to DVD in spite of its success, like, you know, it was a few years later that DVDs became pretty widespread mainstream. And it was a super fan named Michael Alred who came out of the woodwork and started an insane web page, then put Dan O'Bannon in contact with MGM to get this put out. That's how serious this dude was. He oh. was like, I'm getting it on DVD. That's believable because we talked about in our Weird Al episode, UHF, and how it was, it used to be a very expensive VHS tape. Yeah. Like it was selling, and there, this is not speculation, there is proof. It was selling for like a hundred bucks back in the day because there was no other version of it available. Right. And it was a rare tape to begin with because they had gone bankrupt, so they only made so many copies. Yeah. And it was basically like, People demanding that it get released on DVD. <laughs> Give, me. Give me my Weird Al. Well, this did really well. It came did out. It? it did really well. I think, I don't even remember, 14 million or something like that. So it did good. It did well enough to get a bunch of sequels. Yeah. I find this interesting because I have part one through three. Um, that's, I mean, that's always been like the Return of the Living Dead sure. franchise for me. But there were two more that came out officially in really? 2005. Yep. I haven't seen them. Have and you? I've seen, no, I've seen the covers, but I never really thought they were like legit releases, but they were. There's oh. a part four and a part five. Okay. One, the next one was called Necropolis. And then cool. the one after that was called Rave to the Grave. Yes. Well, let's, well, let's just continue our journey. Yeah. I want to watch okay. all of them in a row. The other one I thought about, and this was almost going to be a fun fact, but it wasn't that interesting. So oh. I, was I had a film called Children of the Living Dead. Oh. And I thought, is there some kind of, you like know. Like a connection? Connection. And there was. John Russo produced it. And it is kind of part of the canon but it's not. And it is so bad. And I'm sorry if you guys think it's good. It's not. It's a, it's a really bad film. Aww. There's a great opening scene with Tom Savini. He's like this super, he's like doing flips of and course. kicks and punches. But it got produced and it was just a nightmare of a production. Aww. It's a mess of a film. I got rid of it because I was like, I, it You'll looks cool. It. It's an artisan release, but I'm not going to hold on to this film. I will never watch it again. But it really kind of is part of that whole canon as well. It's part of the universe. But yeah, there were all these sequels that came out. And um, I don't know what's more to, you know, what more to say about Return of the Living Dead. It's a, such a classic for a good reason. Definitely Laser Graves approved. Oh, yeah. So there you go. Um, I want to encourage you guys to pay attention to next week for our giveaway for the details. Mm -hmm. Also, check out our Instagram for the details of that, you can follow us uh, at Lasergraves 
on Instagram. Yep. And if you want to follow our personal sites, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And next week, we will be covering The Worst Witch, if you'd like to get a leg up. A little sneak peek to continue on with our Halloween themes. We are doing the Tim Curry, Feruza Balk uh, classic, The Worst Witch, a a favorite in this household. Oh, yeah. I've watched it nine billion times. Yeah. (laughs) So just keep in mind that anything can happen on Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like we said earlier, please rate, review, subscribe. Yes, please. Go check out all of our friends and their podcasts, Bad Taste Video, Neon Brainiacs, Fright Vision, Super Tat Film Club. I mean, the list goes on and on. Say you love Satan. Go support everybody. And thank you for listening to this big one. Uh, This was a fun one to talk about. And I hope it makes you guys for the Halloween spooky season you know, pull it off your shelf and and watch it again because it is always a fun watch. Yes, and while we're not going to cover the full franchise, you better bet your britches. We're going to watch them on our own and we'd love to hear what you think of the full franchise. (laughs) Chime in. All right, we'll see you next week, guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye.